Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk on the first book of C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. These lectures were delivered at New St. Andrews on the entire C.S. Lewis corpus. If you'd like to hear more from Douglas Wilson on C.S. Lewis, you can get his book at canonpress.com, What I Learned in Narnia. Welcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We commit it to you and ask you to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've uh, spent a good deal of time in Narnia, and now we're moving to uh, C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy, and I'll be uh, focusing a little bit on uh, Out of the Silent Planet. Well, that'll be the, that'll be the starting point. But I want to talk, uh, use this talk on Out of the Silent Planet to sort of set the, the frame or the stage for the whole series of books. The significance of Out of the Silent Planet is twofold. Um, I'll, I'll discuss uh, one aspect of this in the next section, but it amounts to this. The Ransom Trilogy is a popularization in modern garb of the medieval cosmology, which in its turn was a restatement of the biblical cosmology. So you have biblical cosmology, a variation on that, which is the medieval cosmology, and Lewis's cosmology is a modern version of the medieval cosmology, which is a version of the biblical cosmology. There are adjustments, there are variations, but it's recognizably the same in all three categories. Now, there are many modern believers who hold themselves to be Bible believers, but who would recoil in embarrassment from a straightforward reading of what the Star of Bethlehem was actually supposed to have done, which is pick out a house in a small town for the wise men to find. How can a star do that? So Bethlehem is about six miles away from Jerusalem. The Magi uh, follow the star to Bethlehem, and it says the text says explicitly that the star uh, singles out a house, points out the house. They found the house where Jesus and uh, the, the baby Jesus and where Mary and Joseph were uh, because the star showed them the way. Now, either, um, either the account is false, some sort of uh, crazy story, mythological legend sort of thing, or the wise men were doing some serious astrology um, in the dark, you know, high levels of math, trying to figure out, you know, carry the two, no turn left, that sort of, that sort of thing, which also has its own cosmological implications. So if... Um, if they were doing serious astrology and they found the house that way, then that has implications. Or a star in some way, shape, or form came down into our atmosphere and led the way to the house. In which case, stars are not what we assume them to be. Stars are, at the very least, more than what we generally assume them to be. C.S. Lewis is a writer who single-handedly stood against the reductionism of modernity, but he did not do it as an obscurantist, 
but rather as a highly educated don at Oxford. So he is challenging the modern cosmology, which is to say the modern set of assumptions about the way the world functions, the way the world is put together, and he's challenging them for a reason. As the 1962 version of the New Bible Dictionary put it, quote, the implied angelology, the implied angelology of C.S. Lewis's novels, Out of the Silent Planet, etc., would probably have commended itself with some force to the biblical writers. All right, the implied angelology of Lewis's Ransom Trilogy, in other words, would probably have commended itself with some force to the biblical writers. In other words, they were talking about the same basic thing. Now, we don't want to get this backwards, and some people might get this backwards, believing the Bible because C.S. Lewis said it was okay to, to, to believe the Bible. That's backwards. It's important, nevertheless, to note the importance of a man of Lewis's stature showing us many of the places where we may have compromised without knowing it. The second thing to note is that Out of the Silent Planet is important and significant because it, along with Paralandra, it, along with Paralandra, sets the stage for that hideous strength, one of the most prophetic and important novels written in the 20th century. That hideous strength, I think, is important, well-written, gripping, uh, but it's, uh, he says it's a fairy tale for grown-ups. I, I would prefer to categorize it as a uh, prophetic, uh, a novel-length parable, a prophetic um, parable. As you work through the Ransom Trilogy, a number of the characters introduced in Out of the Silent Planet will continue through the remaining two books. But each book is going to gather up new characters as we go. So the characters in Out of the Silent Planet go through the whole trilogy, but there are new characters introduced in Paralandra and then uh, still uh, newer ones in, out in um, that hideous strength. In these books, the protagonist is Dr. Elwyn Ransom, a Cambridge Don. His adversaries are the evil Dr. Edward Weston and an opportunist named Divine. An opportunist named Divine. Divine shows up later in that hideous strength as Lord Feverstone. Weston is motivated by a radical desire to see the human race quote-unquote survive by hook or by crook. Survival is everything. Making it, passing the genes on is everything. The Lord that is associated with each planet is called the Oyarsa of that planet. And the angels that are, that are everywhere in uh, these books are called Eldils. So the angels are Eldils. The uh, celestial, the great celestial beings that accompany each planet are called the Oyarsa. There's an Oyarsa of each planet. Our planet is the one in rebellion. Our planet is the one that fell. Our planet is the silent planet out of which uh, ransom is taken. The Oyarsa of our planet is our Satan. So 
the bent one, Satan, Lucifer, is the Oyarsa of planet Earth. The Oyarsa of the other planets are unfallen and are obedient, sub, uh, obedient servants to Maladil, who is, the, uh, who is God in uh, these stories. So, Ransom is a Cambridge Don, a mild, unassuming uh, language guy. His adversaries are Weston, who's a phys uh, physicist, and an opportunist named Divine. Okay? The action in the Ransom trilogy occurs on three planets, respectively. The first book occurs primarily on Malacandra, or as we would say it, Mars. The second occurs on Venus, or Paralandra. The final book takes place on Earth, or Thulcandra, the silent planet of the first book's title. So the action is first on Mars, then on Venus, then on Earth. First Malacandra, then Paralandra, then Thulcandra. Now, when the, uh, when the action opens, Dr. Weston and Divine have been to Malacandra once before in a spaceship that is built by Weston. So Weston's a great scientist. He builds a spaceship privately. Um, you know, he, he's... You know, it's not a government program. He, um, he builds a spaceship, and he and Divine go to Malacandra. There, they have gotten muddled, and they believe that the inhabitants, there are inhabitants there in Malacandra, they believe that the inhabitants of Malacandra want some sort of sacrificial lamb. Um, and this is because they have um, taken assumptions from Earth to, um, to Malacandra, and they're thinking of these planets as South Sea islands with cannibals on them. That's their mental image. So we came to this island with primitive peoples on it, and they somehow communicated to us that they wanted someone, an explorer to throw, or uh, an explorer or missionary to throw into the pot, right? So they come back to Earth to get this sacrificial lamb. They are in the process of kidnapping a slow-witted farm boy for this purpose, to take him back as the sacrificial lamb, when Ransom, who is out on a walking tour all by himself, comes upon them and tries to save the boy. As a result, the, the boy gets away, they wind up taking Ransom away instead. Because Ransom was on a solitary walking tour, uh, he would not be immediately missed by anyone, and so they leave the planet, and there's no, you know, you're not going to find a body. You're not going to find any uh, evidence of anything. So um, they take Ransom to Malacandra. Once they arrive in Malacandra, Ransom manages to escape. Uh, the action of the story ensues, which I will not spoil for you. All right, so basically, Ransom gets away from the two bad guys. He goes off into Malacandra. He learns the old... Uh, he learns old solar. He learns, he's a language guy. He learns the language of deep heaven. He uh, becomes acquainted with the three different races that I'll, I'll mention um, to you that are there on uh, Malacandra. And, uh, and then at the end of the book, Weston and Divine are forced to take Ransom back to Earth uh, with them. And so they get back to Earth, and that's, uh, that's that. I won't spoil the action for you of what happens on 
uh, Malachandra. While he's on Malachandra, Ransom, who is a philologist or a language specialist, as it happens, learns Old Solar, and he becomes acquainted with the three sentient races that are there on that planet. The Hrasa, the Sorns, and the Piffeltrigi. The Hrasa, the Sorns, and the Piffeltrigi. The Hrasa are that world's musicians and poets, and also hunters, uh, they, so they can have something to sing about, something to write poems about. They are that world's musicians and poets. The Sorns are that world's uh, philosophers and scholars, and the Piffeltrigi are their craftsmen and artisans. So the Hrasa are hunters, musicians, poets. The Sorns are philosophers and scholars, very wise and learned. And the Piffeltrigi are their craftsmen, artisans, hands-on types. None of them are humanoid, but all are hanau, creatures with souls, basically. All of them are hanau. Um, they are uh, sentient, rational, they have souls, and uh, have they can speak uh, different languages, they can speak, ransom can uh, communicate with them, etc. At the end of the stories I already mentioned, the Oyarsa, uh, they encounter the Oyarsa of Malachandra at the end of the story. Uh, he requires all three men to return to Earth in their spaceship with adequate protections in place for ransom so that the bad guys don't, uh, uh, don't turn on him and, uh, and kill him. And that sets the stage for the second novel, Paralandra. Now, Lewis once described himself as, an, as a, quote, old Western man, old Western man, uh, a veritable dinosaur. At the very center of this description was Lewis's allegiance to a particular version of medieval cosmology in stark contrast to the modernist notion of outer space. So um, you all have a, um, you have certain conceptions of reality that are not necessarily the real way the reality looks. Um, what do I mean by this conception or this paradigm? Well, your, your notion of the solar system was formed by reading articles in National Geographic with paintings of the solar system, or perhaps paper mache planets hanging from the ceiling of your third grade classroom. Here's the sun, here's Mercury, here's Venus, and so you have this conception of how it's supposed to look. If you uh, have time in the inclination, even on its own terms, uh, look up uh, look up what the solar system would actually uh, look like adjusted for size, right? So if you have, uh, uh, instead of a, a picture of the solar system where you have Mercury, Venus, Earth, uh, have everything accurately sized and say, make the sun the size of a basketball, and, uh, and that means that you would have Jupiter three miles away the size of a tennis ball, right? That, that, it's that kind of um, that kind of structure, even on its own terms. So, um, of course, we, we believe that all of reality is, is self-consistent, and we, don't, we want to affirm the way the world actually is. But our mental image of the world is not the same thing as the world. 
Okay? It's the same thing with an atom. You've got a certain a conception of the atom as a small, teeny solar system, and what physicists will tell you an atom is actually like is nothing like that. It's, it's not even a, a model. It's more like a, an analogy, a three-dimensional analogy or something for, uh, for uh, the atom. We, tend to, we want to think in pictures, pictures of the solar system, pictures of the atom, and so on. Well, Lewis functioned in terms of the medieval picture of the cosmos. So he's trying to uh, demonstrate his allegiance to a particular version of medieval cosmology uh, with variations. He, he, um, I'll, I'll get into this later. He, he varies, he makes adjustments based on the things that we now know are not true. But he's kicking, he's kicking against our modernist notion of outer space, quote unquote, outer space. Now given this, it is highly ironic that this series of books has come to be popularly known as the Space Trilogy. Um, that's not, why do we call it the Space Trilogy? Let us call it, let us at any rate, call it the Ransom Trilogy. It's the Ransom Trilogy, it's not the Space Trilogy. Uh, at the end of the book, Ransom purportedly says this to Lewis, quote, if we could even effect in 1% of our readers a changeover from the conception of space to the conception of heaven, we should have made a beginning. If we, if we shift people from thinking of space to thinking of heaven, if we just take that small step and if we accomplish that in 1% of our readers, then that's going to be a great beginning. So let's help them out by not calling it the Space Trilogy anymore. Do not call it the Space Trilogy. It's the Ransom Trilogy. So for Lewis, while the story of Ransom and Weston, that particular story was fiction, the heavenly reality in the sky was not fiction for him at all. This is a central worldview emphasis in these books. Cosmology is a necessary component of every worldview. Without a cosmology, you don't have a worldview. You have to have a map of what is, a map of the heavens and earth, a map of the sky, a map of the cosmos. You've got to have some conception of that if you have a worldview at all. Moderns have come to conceive of outer space as a vast, infinite, mostly empty stretch of not much really, punctuated here and there by dead rock or flaming gas. That's, that's what it is, an infinite stretch of mostly nothing here and there, dead rock, um, here and there, flaming gas, which because it's so dark out there, the flaming gas stands out. You can see, you can see it, but that's all it is. So for them, for the most part, the universe is a bunch of nothing. For them, the universe is a bunch of nothing with little somethings here and there. In contrast to this, for Lewis, the cosmos was teeming with life love and color. It was teeming with intelligence. It was his desire to bring about a fundamental reversal in the minds of his readers. From empty to full, from black to colorful, and from dead to alive. He wants us to think that when we have gotten up into what we would call outer space, what we call the void, what we think of as 
the outer darkness. You know, <laughs> what is what have we done when we identify when we when we fall completely into the trap of outer space? We've identified heaven with hell. What is hell? It's the outer darkness. Well, the heavens are not <laughs> the heavens are not the outer darkness. Those students who gain a taste for this kind of cosmology from these stories should at some point move on to Lewis's nonfiction work concerning it. Uh, if you read Narnia over and over, and you read the Ransom Trilogy over and over, and you want to get a, a grasp of what Lewis is on about, what he's doing, um, let me give you some uh, things to read, and then you can come back to the Ransom Trilogy and to Narnia uh, more fully equipped. The place to begin would be his essay, Imagination and Thought in the Middle Ages. Imagination and Thought in the Middle Ages. It's just a chapter, just an essay, which can be found in Studies in Medieval and Renaissance Literature. Now, that's an essay-length treatment of the same topic that he covers in a book-length treatment in The Discarded Image. So book-length treatment of these same themes is found in The Discarded Image. So you can read The Discarded Image and get the full meal deal, or you can read Imagination and Thought in the Middle Ages, and you, and you have a short essay-length summary of his thesis in The Discarded Image. For those who want to follow in Lewis's footsteps here, as he plainly intended for us to do, I would recommend these books, the three books uh, uh, that we're covering, Silent Planet, Paralandra, um, That Hideous Strength, then Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, and then the Narniad. So if you read Planet Narnia, the Narniad, the Ransom Trilogy, and then the essay and the, the, I mentioned and the discarded image, then you're going to be pretty fully um, abreast of what Lewis was up to, what he was trying to advance. The issue of cosmology is not a trivial side point for Lewis. It is a pervasive theme in all of his work. It is a pervasive theme in all of his work. He's urging it. He's arguing for it. He's trying to advance it, um, not without exception, not without exception, but he is trying to um, uh, get this cosmology back on the worldview map. So let's talk about that for just a bit. I'm going to quote Lewis at a couple, in a couple of places um, and then uh, talk a, a little bit um, more about this in, in explanatory terms because I don't think these books are going to make sense without, the, without this. All right? So first we should consider the physical structure of the world. And by world I mean universe. Well, we would say universe. This, this is Lewis from that essay I mentioned, Imagination and Thought. Lewis, I assume that everyone knows more or less its material layout a motionless earth at the center, transparent spheres revolving round it, of which the lowest, slowest, nearest, and smallest carries the moon, and thence upward in the order Mercury, Venus, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, beyond these all the stars in one sphere, beyond that a sphere which carries no light but merely imparts movement to those below it. That sphere is the clutch. Okay, that's the gear that makes it all go. Beyond that, the Empyrean, 
the boundary of the mundus, the boundary of the world, the beginning of the infinite true heaven. Okay, so what you have is a motionless earth at the center. You have transparent spheres. Now think of it this way. You've got the earth here, and then <clears throat> uh, around it, we're not, we're not talking about a sphere as in a circle. We're talking about a sphere as in a globe. So picture the earth at the center, and then a goldfish bowl, or one of those um, <clears throat> glass things that fishermen use in their nets, so, you know, a little round glass ball. Um, so you have a glass ball that completely encases the earth. So that would be the earth at the center, then the, the glass case, glass, you know, quotation marks around it. And, and embedded in the wall of the glass is a marble. That marble is the moon. Okay, so you have the earth, glass sphere surrounding the earth, and embedded in the side of the glass sphere is a marble called the moon. Then you go one out, you've got, this whole thing is like a Russian doll. All right, so you have um, these spheres that encase the whole thing, and then embedded in the wall of that sphere is Venus, the planet Venus. Then you go um, one out and you have um, uh, the sun, then you have Mars, then you have Jupiter. Okay, here is another quote from Lewis. Go out on any starry night and walk alone for half an hour, resolutely assuming that the pre-Copernican astronomy is true. Look up at the sky with, the with that assumption in your mind. The real difference between living in that universe and living in ours will then, I predict, begin to dawn on you. Okay, so go out, look at a, a star-spangled night, and try to, think like, um, try to think like a medieval. When moderns hear about the heavenly spheres, it's easy to assume that the reference is to the planets themselves, to the marble. But it's not to the marble. It's to the, the thing that carries the marble, the thing that carries the planet. Instead of this, think of the sphere as a great transparent globe surrounding our planet completely. We are at the center of it. And I should say something there. We are not at the center of this thing because we are the most important. That's, uh, one of the, it's one of the outrageous slanders on the Middle Ages that they, they were geocentric. They did believe in a geocentric uh, uh, solar system. But their geocentricity was not a function of them believing man, that Earth was the most important. They thought we were the sump pump in the basement. Okay? They, they thought that we were uh, the lowest place that anybody occupied. It was central, but it was low. All the, all the action was up in the heavens. All the good stuff was up there. We were, um, we were lowly, central and lowly, but lowly. So... Uh, we are at the center of it. The planet associated with that sphere would be embedded in the wall of the sphere itself, the way you might embed a marble in the glass of a goldfish bowl. The, the sphere would spin, carrying the planet with it. Okay, so you have Earth, Moon, Venus, Sun, all the way out. And each sphere, transparent sphere, and it's transparent because you can see through them, all the way out to the stars, right? So each one of these spheres um, spins. Um, 
And we have, uh, what is that hymn? Uh, the music of the spheres, and round me rings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. Um, that's not the spheres of the planets. That's the spheres that carry the planets. And uh, there were different medieval uh, debates. The <clears throat> One of them was, do these spheres make any noise when they spin? And the answer is, the, the, the received answer is yes. It's the music of the spheres. And then the question was, if the spheres make music as they sing, um, as they sing, as they spin, why can't we hear it? And the answer was, it's kind of like living by the train station. Um, you, you can't hear the trains anymore, uh, or, the, or the cuckoo clock in your house, you don't hear that anymore. It's just part of the routine. But they, but they might say, if the music of the spheres ever stopped, we'd all go mad, because it's, it's so totally, completely part of our environment, what, part of what surrounds us. Also, uh, what made, what's the motive force of these planets? What, why the spinning? What, what makes them spin? Well, clearly, God is infinite. Uh, work with me here. God is infinite. And if you're a finite being and you want to imitate God, what, what's the most perfect motion you could perform in imitation of God? Well, it's obviously a circle, right? A circle is imitative of God's perfection, and so these spheres imitate God and demonstrate their love for God by spinning in a circle. That's, what, that's, why, that's the motive force. That's what makes them go. So the sphere spins, uh, spins, carrying the planet with it. If you follow Lewis's suggestion go, and you go out into the night sky, go, go out and look up at the night sky, you will be looking at a universe immense but finite. Follow his suggestion, go out and look at the sky. You are looking at a universe immense but finite. In this finite universe, the word small, as applied to earth, has some meaning. Small, applied to earth, has meaning because the universe is finite. If the universe is infinite, then the Milky Way is as there is no appreciable difference between the ratio of the Milky Way to all that is and the planet Earth to all that is and a grain of sand to all that is. But there's no uh, small and large become... uh, actually uh, almost entirely meaningless. So the word small is applied to earth as some meaning. In an infinite universe, small and large are equally meaningless. Infinity was, for the ancients, an incoherent concept. Infinity for the material world. It was not incoherent for them if ascribed to God. If you go out and look at the night sky the way Lewis recommends, you would be considering the aspect of height. We have, when we look at the night sky, and this shows you the authority of those paper mache solar systems and the classroom ceiling, we have the sensation of looking out. We feel like we're looking out. The medieval felt like he was looking up. Because we learned our cosmology from Star Trek movies, we feel like we are standing on an island looking out at the ocean. That's, the mo- that's our model. So Earth is an island. In a, it's a three-dimensional ocean, but it's like islands in an ocean. 
and we look out. And so the Star Trek movies are the Starship Enterprise is like a clip is like a sailing ship sailing across the Pacific, coming to different ports of call, coming to different new islands, and oh, let's check, this, let's find out what's uh, what's here. So this is the model that we find in most science fiction. Spaceships making landfall in much the same way that sailing ships would come upon an island in the South Pacific. But the, but the medieval man felt like he was looking up the side of a skyscraper. So that's the f- sensation of height. It's a diz- it would be a dizzying thing. So um, go to a big city, uh, find the tallest skyscraper you can find, stand right at the base of it and look up. The sensation that you have in that situation is the way a medieval man would feel looking at the night sky. And one last difference is that we've been trained to see the whole thing as, a, as the result of a massive explosion, the Big Bang. So we think we're looking at a huge debris field. Blam! And then everything is just randomly scattered. The medieval man would be looking at something which was structured, built, or assembled. He felt like he was living inside the complex housing of a glorious artifact. Inside the complex housing of a glorious artifact. And everywhere he looked, he saw gears and levers and things moving and whirring perfectly. The whole thing ran like an exquisitely designed um, machine. Medieval man did not think that everything moved in obedience to impersonal laws, like the law of gravity. Rather, he felt that everything had its natural station and out of love and humility sought to get there. So the the spheres, as I mentioned before, would spin because they're imitating God and they're showing their love for him. If I took a a lowly object like my watch here and let go of it, um, this watch is a lowly object and it wants to humble itself. And so it goes down. It, um, now it goes down at 9.8 meters per second squared, which indicates that God is constant in how he allows his creaturely um, inanimate objects like rocks and pebbles and watches to show that, that humility, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a humble, it's a humbling sort of thing. So, many of the things that we regard today as inanimate were considered by them to be intelligent creatures or affected by intelligent creatures. These creatures were busy loving God and trying to find the best place from which that love could be expressed. So love makes the world go round. So with regard to the spheres, they also moved in accordance with love, as I mentioned. God, the immutable one, could not change. So how could such a creature imitate the perfect God? The closest imitative approach would be to travel in a perfect figure, i.e. a circle. A circle was perfect, everything in heaven was perfect, so why should you look through a telescope to find out how it moved? Why would you investigate that? We already know that everything's perfect in heaven. And for the medievals, the boundary of, the, the boundary of our fallenness, the, the, the limit on the screwed upness was the orbit of the moon. So everything that was sublunar was part of our world. 
everything that was beyond the moon was perfect, heavenly. They, they believed that the fall affected our realm only. So why would you, so why would you get a telescope to, to look for blemishes in heaven? But at the same time, keep in mind that the battle between Galileo and the church was not a battle between science and mindless fundamentalism. The battle between Galileo and the church was not between science and mindless fundamentalism. The battle between Galileo and the church was the battle between the old science and the new science. It was, it was science versus science. The people opposing um, Galileo, a number of them were churchmen, but they were scientifically trained. They were, uh, they, they were just trained in the old science. So it was a battle between new science and old science, and the error of the church had been that of getting into bed with the best science of the previous day. We shouldn't do that again. As we all know, as Max Planck once put it, science advances funeral by funeral. So there were things that Galileo had to point out. There were things that C.S. Lewis, as you're going to see shortly, C.S. Lewis wanted to incorporate into the medieval worldview, but he wanted to do it without jettisoning, jettisoning the medieval worldview. Now, some might be objecting to all of this. Surely, someone as intelligent as C.S. Lewis didn't buy all of this, did he? Well, in the essentials, he did. But he does grant something to the modern astronomer. In his epilogue to the discarded image, he says this, quote, it is possible that some readers have long been itching to remind me that it, the medieval cosmology, that it had a serious defect. It was not true. I agree, it was not true. All right, so we finally get on page 216, we get this grudging admission from Lewis. Okay, fine, it's not true. When Ransom travels with Weston in his spaceship to Mars, they do not collide, for example, they do not collide with the spheres. Uh, you know, if, there's, if Earth is here and there's a transparent sphere with the moon as a marble in it and it's spinning around, what's going to happen is you're going to, your spaceship is going to run into that sphere. Right? You, you're going to have trouble getting, how, how do you get through it? Um, and so the, the spaceship that Weston builds flies through the solar system just like a spaceship uh, invented by H.G. Wells would fly through the solar system without, without any um, obstacles. So they, didn't, they got past the sphere of the moon. They didn't collide with the sphere of Venus either. So Lewis grants the point about physical layout, and although he doesn't explicitly state it, he appears to grant the point about heliocentricity. Right, so, uh, well, actually, he might explicitly say that. I have, I'd have to go uh, looking for it. He appears to abandon the idea of a material sphere that carries the planet. He appears to abandon the idea of geocentricity and adopts uh, the heliocentric view. So he grants the point that he's, he believes that moderns have discovered something new about the physical layout. But does Lewis believe that each planet had a lord, an, o an Oyarsa. 
And does he believe the same thing about stars? Most certainly. He absolutely believes that. That's something he has not abandoned. In uh, Voids of the Dawn Treader, in our world, said Eustace, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Okay, so let's work through this because this is a big deal. So I, I don't want anybody rushing off thinking that C.S. Lewis was an idiot. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, for some reason, had a brain spasm and, and didn't accept what everybody knows. Um, what Lewis is resisting here, that's not what a star is, but only what it's made of. What he's resisting is the fallacy of reductionism. The fallacy of reductionism. What one writer has called the fallacy of nothing buttery. The fallacy of nothing buttery. In this view, a human being is nothing but the chemicals that make up his body. Because a man's spirit or soul cannot be observed under a microscope, it must therefore not exist. If you can't find a man's soul on the physical plane, he must not have a soul. But if you could find his soul on the physical plane, it wouldn't be a soul, right? Um, what Christians are maintaining is that the material realm is not the end of the story. There are other aspects of reality. There are other layers to reality. But what would you make of a man who lit up a huge cigar, a major stinker, stinker, right underneath a no-smoking sign, and then when called on it, replied that the sign was nothing but paper and ink. Is that true? Well, yes, it's materially true. The, the sign on the wall that says no smoking is nothing but paper and ink. That's all you're going to find looking under a microscope. You could cut the sign up. You could look at, the, you can analyze the ink. You could, you know, you could do... Um, any number of things to it physically, but you're not going to find the spiritual reality that we call information. Information doesn't have height or depth or weight or color. Information is truly spiritual. It has no physical attributes. So, physically, it's true that there's nothing on the sign but paper and ink. There's nothing, you can hold up a paperback a copy of Hamlet and say, there's nothing here but paper and ink. But that's like pointing to a man and saying, there's nothing there but meat, bones, and protoplasm. That's true. There's nothing there materially but meat, bones, and protoplasm. It's also true that there's nothing in the paperback book but paper and ink, no Hamlet, no, no great art there, just paper and ink. That's reductionism. That reductionism is a simple-minded, sophomoric error that many, many people fall into. So you look at the sign, there's information there. And information cannot be analyzed under a microscope. Information is spiritual. Information is spiritual, but that does not make it non-existent. Nothing buttery is a very basic category mistake. Now, uh, let me just make a parenthetical comment here. This is one of the reasons why um, uh, advances in microbiology have been so 
devastating for the Darwinist, so devastating for the materialist. Uh, when, we, when we study life and you study the cell and you find out that every living cell has DNA in it, what is DNA? It's a vast, complex library full of information. And information is not material. Information is spiritual. And so a library is full of, uh, full of uh, ideas and thoughts and stories and novels and programs and, uh, uh, that, are, that go beyond the material components of what makes up that physical library. When you come down to the level of DNA, you discover li uh, library after library after library full of information, crammed full of information. And uh, not, not only so, but you have, um, so on a DNA strand, you have, it codes, the information is coded one way, um, and then you know what a, a palindrome is. A palindrome would be, uh, the first words spoken were a palindrome. Madam, I'm Adam. So if, if, you, uh, if Adam says, Madam, I'm Adam, if you read it this way, it's Madam, I'm Adam, and you read it this way, it's Madam, I'm Adam. So it reads the same way, front and back. Well, um, suppose you had a language where it said, Madam, I'm Adam, this way, and, and go, reading the other way, it was, uh, hello yourself, I'm Eve. Suppose it went this way, one way, and then you had another language going the other way. Uh, or you had uh, war and peace going this way and pride and prejudice going uh, this way. The, the complexity of the information, the complexity of the, uh, of the spiritual realities at the base of human life is just absolutely uh, staggering. And the reductionist wants to treat it like it's all just stuff banging into each other, just, um, just crazy. All right, so what Lewis is doing is he's holding tenaciously to the necessity of resisting reductionism in all its forms. In this battle of his, he sees the futility of allowing the materialist to define what the universe is like and then to mount a last-ditch effort to save the human soul from this reductionistic pressure. Uh, what has happened among Christians is that we we allow the reductionists to define heaven and earth and everything on the earth except for us, except for the human soul. And then we fight them about that. What Lewis does is he takes it out to the outer extremity and says, no, I'm going to challenge the reductionist at his picture of the cosmos. I'm going to challenge, I'm going to not even let him get started. The medievals did debate a mind-body problem with regard to these spheres that circle us. One option was that these intelligences were resident in their spheres, the way a man's soul is resident in his body. So um, I am more than my body. I can make a distinction between my mind and my body, but my mind and body are uh, woven together. They're integrated. In this case, the spheres themselves would be great animals. Okay, if you, if you wed the Oyarsa, to the sphere itself, that would make the sphere uh, a, a body. And that body is animated by the Oyarsa. The other option, which generally won out, is the notion that these intelligences rode 
the spheres the way a pilot rides an airplane. So the first idea is the sphere has a body, um, the, the oyarsa is the soul, and the sphere is the body. The other is that uh, the oyarsa was the pilot assigned to a particular contraption that God had built. And so the intelligence rides the sphere the way a pilot rides an airplane. You'll see this uh, later in that hideous strength when the Oyarsa leave their ships to come down to fill and empower Merlin. So when Jupiter comes down to Earth and Venus comes down to Earth and all the, all the uh, Oyarsa of deep heaven come down to Earth, well, what's actually going on there? I think Lewis doesn't say this explicitly, but I think he uh, goes with the uh, idea that the sphere was a contraption that the Oyarsa rode, and the uh, Oyarsa could put it on cruise control and come down to Earth to, for this visit and then go back, to his, uh, go back to his sphere. That's what I think uh, Lewis is assuming. I, th I think Lewis is going with the majority report in, uh, in medieval thinking. So um, the sphere, uh, and this incidentally, uh, th this conception, even in our world, that's not what a star is. That's only what a star is made of. Um, he's saying that there is a body. Um, you've got the sphere, which is the contraption. You might say that the, the marble embedded in the sphere might be a body. You might have a combination of the, of the two views. Um, but I'm, I could be, uh, if I die, my body is here and my soul goes to heaven. In principle, there's, it's possible to separate the two, even if they're great animals. You could have some sort of uh, soul projection. So, uh, but you have to have something like this, I think, if you want to make sense out of the Christmas story and the Magi being led to Bethlehem by a star, or if you want to have the stars come down and announce the birth of the Messiah to the shepherds. If... Um, so if an angel appears and there's bright light shining all around the shepherds and, and it's right above them in our, in our atmosphere and suddenly all the heavenly host is there saying, uh, I think they're singing, but uh, the heavenly host is there making this declaration and then it says they recede back into heaven and the, the word for recede is um, think of... I forget which space uh, opera it is, but um, they go into hyperdrive and the and the stars go sort of thwap out of the, you know they they smear all the stars smear and they uh, well that's that's the verb that describes what the um, heavenly host did when they receded from the angels they they receded from the shepherds they receded up into heaven, which leads to an interesting question if someone said. Um, have you ever seen an angel? You should say, yeah, lots of them. Every night? Well, unless it's cloudy. Right? <laughs> if it's cloudy, I can't see him. But every night I see, I see them. I see, the heavenly, I see the heavenly host. In the Bible, uh, the heavenly host is not something that was invisible and tucked away. You could go out at night and point to the heavenly host. That's the heavenly host. All right? Um, they are God's foot soldiers, God's heavenly soldiers. So Lewis used the term eldils uh, for what we would call angels. 
But the medieval man had a much more developed understanding of these creatures than moderns would, even modern Christians who believe in angels. Angels was a term that was used of all the celestials. Angels is, is a term that's used of the, all, every rank of celestial. But we must remember that it was also used to speak of the lowest rank of the celestials. Angels were all angels, and angels were also the foot soldiers of the heavenly host. So every, everything up there that was a celestial being is called an angel, but that's also the name of the lowest rank of angel. So there were for the medievalist nine classes of angels, a triad of triads. The first was composed of seraphim, cherubim, and thrones. The second was dominations, virtues, and powers. The third was principalities, archangels, and angels. Okay, so the angels were the buck privates, archangels are the corporals, principalities are the sergeants. Okay, it's not until you get up to the, the cherubim that you're the seraphim and cherubim that you're dealing with generals. One other thing to note is that the planets themselves, embedded in the spheres, were also active. Their beams would penetrate the Earth's crust and turn the soil into the appropriate metal associated with each planet. This is something that will become more obvious as you work through these books. The influence was also exerted on people. Born under Saturn, you tended to be melancholy. Under Jove, you were jovial. Under Venus, you, you tended toward amorousness, and so on. There are other aspects of the worldview found in these books that we're going to be discussed when we um, uh, get to Paralandra next week and that hideous strength. But the cosmological issues are foundational to all of them. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's talk, Out of the Silent Planet. Don't forget, you can find his book, What I Learned in Narnia, at canonpress.com.